0: I want to say this out in the open. I support the Jewish state of Israel. They have been that land. That is their land, and it's the UN that has declared them terrorist. The UN has declared that 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 uh, Israel has been acting uh, wrongly, and the UN supports groups that want to dissolve the state of Israel and make it a marginalized state where we know Jews will not be allowed to stay. The Arabs will run them out of there. And I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not any Arab either. <laughs> The country 20 years ago passed the line of being more foreign-owned than owned by Americans. Well, now, there's almost nothing American. All these companies that got no-bid contracts because they're American. You know, like Halliburton and the rest of it have moved to Dubai. They've moved to Saudi Arabia. It's gone. Most of the movie theater change. Uh, change.
1: Hollywood is owned by the Arabs. The article is called. How Jewish is Hollywood? Its date is December 19, 2008. Check it out. Stein talks of a new opinion poll by Foxman and the ADL that shows only 22% of the American people now believe that the movie and television industries are pretty much owned by Jews. Mr. Stein thinks it's crazy that so few Americans believe that Jews control the media. He says it, quote, shows how dumb America has gotten. Because he says, quote, Jews totally run Hollywood. His next paragraph is worth quoting every word. How deeply Jewish is Hollywood when the studio chiefs took out a full-page ad in the Los Angeles Times a few weeks ago to a demand that the screen act. Guild settled its contract. The open letter was signed by News Corp President Peter Chernin, Jewish, Paramount Pictures Chairman, Brad Gray, Jewish, Walt Disney Company Chief Executive, Robert Iger, Jewish, Sony Pictures Chairman, Michael Linton, surprise, Dutch Jew, Warner Brothers Chairman, Barry Meyer. Jewish. CBS Corp. Chief Executive Leslie Moonves. So Jewish, his great uncle was the first Prime Minister of Israel. MGM Chairman Harry Sloan. Jewish. And NBC Universal Chief Executive Jeff Zucker. Mega Jewish. If either of the Weinstein brothers had signed, this group would have not only the power to shut down all film production production, but to form a minion with enough Fiji water on hand to fill a mikvah. Uh,
0: and the Israelis for some reason, uh, but the actual financing I've looked into it—is is mainly Saudi and Jordanian and, and, and uh, the folks from Dubai and Qatar and a few other places, and then British of course. And uh, what was left was defense industries and stock markets. And I knew the Arabs owned the majority of some stock markets, but I was reading the Financial Times of London and learned that the majority of world stock markets are now owned by the Arabs. <laughs> that is the. But as if it wasn't enough that two Middle Eastern countries own 49% of the London Stock Exchange, now they're about to bid and own the majority, and that's just two countries. If you add them all together, uh, the Arabs own, own it almost outright, 70-plus percent. And uh, same thing with Dow Jones, uh, because Arabs own uh, Fox. You see, you didn't know that, did you? You didn't know that Arabs... See, Murdoch's only got a minority stock now. Uh, but, he, but the way the agreements were set, he still has board control. But uh, Saudis... Own more than he does, but there's one Saudi with 14 percent last year. Uh, But I mean, so the point is, they just own everything. I mean, they control the whole deal. Now it's defense stocks, though, and they're going to destroy their neighbors. I mean, you think Israel hates the Iranians? Oh, nothing like the Wahhabi Saudis. They hate those Shiites so much. (laughs) Al Qaeda's based in in Saudi. Bush announced three months ago that he's using al-Qaeda to attack Iran, but then on the news they say Iran's behind al-Qaeda. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make that stuff up. No movie could be that ridiculous. No one would believe it. No book could be that crazy. No no, no, no fiction. Theater change, uh, change. Hollywood is owned by the Arabs. Uh, you tell me if that isn't a joke. <laughs> <laughs> you people won't take. There's no amount of abuse that you don't love. Let's talk to Matthew calling us from North Carolina. Matthew, you're on the air. Yeah, hey Alex. Hi. Um, I have a quick question before I get to a comment. Have you discussed this uh, report that came out by the two scholars from Harvard on the Paladine Israeli lobby in the United States? Yes, uh, that's a big APAC report, very scholarly, admitting that, you know, sir, listen, the Communist Chinese have most of our major ports and run security. Customs isn't allowed to investigate. The UAE, uh, you know, 21 ports, uh, our highways are being taken over by the king of Spain who owns the company Centra, to, to, to tax us the equivalent of $3 a gallon. I mean, it's just we're totally being sold out to these international crime syndicates. Because I've done the research. Israel could not carry out these attacks. And, and I, again, I'm just saying that on the record. I'm trying to go after who's guilty. I'll say who I believe did it, and all the evidence shows it. And it's, it's, it's Dick Cheney, it's people above him, and of course uh, uh, Bob Bowman has said that before head of the Star Wars program. Many others have fingered him as the main suspect. And, and so it is a scapegoat to say, and again, Michael, you don't even get into this stuff. I just brought it up because I'm sick of from my research, it's it's these Luciferian controllers. It doesn't matter if it's Albert Pike, the founder of the Klan, Confederate General, ally of these people, or Adolf Hitler. It's just an evil crew of individuals. And the, the caller must have tuned in this hour, this is the last hour. uh Yeah, they told them we're gonna have a dentist appointment. We're gonna go test you for a ringworm, which is just the a fungus. They took 110,000 sephardi little children, uh, ages uh, five to ten. And, and and as the caller said, most watched documentary in, uh, uh, over there in Israel, and I can't believe it was even on TV over there, and they killed them. And most of them died within a week, and a few hundred are alive today, and uh, they don't have any hair, and even if they're women, they're, uh, they're totally brain damaged. And the U.S. government paid to do this. Of course, our government brought the Nazis over here, and, and that was the Ratline Project Paperclip. And I guess I'm... I, I'm bad. I mean, I'm, I'm evil for, for even trying to say it's wrong to kill Jewish children. Why? Why are they always wanting to kill Jews? First, I, I really think we need to establish the fact that we're not talking about the religion here. Uh, I, I'm not an anti-Semite, uh, but uh, there are lots of some very powerful people in this world that are Jews, but they're not real Jews. And they're behind all this... Uh, There's Kabbalah to dominate the entire world. And so it's not a religious subject. We're talking about a power subject. Well, I mean, this group openly uh, went and killed 100... Plus thousand and are radiated, uh, these, these, these Sephardi. They, every time we look, they're killing Jews. Stuff started because me talking about how I have Native American background and my wife from family she had from Poland and her relatives does have some Jewish background. She's a Christian or family or Texas
2: farmers. They're all Christians. But that, that doesn't matter. That comes from my show. That's from me.
3: There is a Zionist terror cell Located in Austin, Texas And it is identified as belonging to Alex Jones Okay, that's my Alex Jones impression And I'm gonna stop that Because I sound like a frog Turn the fucking frogs gay <laughs> <laughs> Hillary's a demon A goddamn demon Ah! I just like those clips I always show those. I always take the piss out of Alex Jones on the Beyond Top Secret Texan because I know full well his history, and I watched him literally since he was in um, public broadcasting in Austin. And people don't believe this, but if you're from Texas, and like me, who's into art and music and the scene and counterculture, et cetera, and are weird and read a lot, Alex Jones has been popping up since the late 90s. Uh, on and off again. And I know he was even operational. I think around 1995, 1996. So even when I was a small child, that's when he got his first days. And then over time, basically grew up alongside Alex Jones, infused media, radio programs. He said, "If you read King of the Hill, or you watch King of the Hill, it's this entire Texas uh, conspiracy culture that's very pronounced, and just like uh, Dale Gribbleism and everything." So Alex Jones definitely played upon that, and it was it was active even at the time. Um, But it's very clear Alex Jones has bought opposition. He's he's co-intel pro. He's a a narc. He's absolutely a studio plant. He's a deep state shill. And it's been a very carefully cultivated act by Stratfor, the Israeli-owned private intelligence networking agency that does everything like run Donald Trump's political campaign, and uh, control Infowars' $100 million-a-year financial empire across video, radio, and, you know, all-content generation based on the cult of personality that is Alex Jones. Alex Jones, Alex Jones, Alex Jones, exactly. The AJ, right? The anti-Jesus, the Alex Jones. Uh, So basically, while his flaws are many... And it's clear as day just by looking at him, the spectacle that it is. He is the jackass, the uh, scapegoat, as it were, uh, for all of the society's obvious ills and toxicities, and is a satire upon a satire, just like how Stephen Colbert was, um... But it's gone so far as to be a very deep undercover one, on a very niche conspiratorial one that is actually now very mainstream. And just like Joe Rogan, just like all of these, he has survived and evolved to the modern day. So, fair game. It's not he's not old. It's not he is basically the mainstream, most dominant person in town still survived all of this and is now in current incarnation over 30 years, over 30 years activity, right? But Alex Jones is absolutely owned by Zionists, he's owned by the Jesuits, he's owned by a lot of this Freemasonic uh, COINTELPRO mastery, from the top down. All of his staff is, the entire production studio that he works for is, his networking agency is completely owned by Stratfor, his marketing department, for example, completely owned by Stratfor, his lawyers, you know, not going to say who they are they're Jewish lawyers (laughs) and so and I think that's funny because no one even talks about his doctors and stuff like he had a live-in nurse that he would share with Charlie Sheen sexually and then because Charlie Sheen has HIV the nurse got HIV but no one's ever and she came out publicly and said this that she was both Alex Jones's and Charlie Sheen's like nurse quote unquote like person who would give them drugs and uh, have sex with them you know, with a medical degree, I guess that's the, that's the code word for these celebrity nurses and she had HIV because she contracted from Charlie Sheen, but Alex Jones was having sex with her as well no one's ever brought up the fact that a- Alex Jones is HIV positive Like, oh, it, was a, it was 100% HIV positive as well, so there's that agenda, and plus uh, very publicly you know, was ousted with a she-male Like, you know, fetishization. He's a female chaser and shit. And that's, you know, it's very clear that he's very decadent and hedonistic. And he just looks the part of the pig, the roasted, like, baked pig look. He looks like a fucking hame with hair on it. Just typical, uh, fucking boomer, Generation X Texan who's, uh, more liberal and hedonistic, um, than they want to ever be exposed for but ultimately hides behind conservatism and uh, under the quote-unquote libertarian banner which is just the the uh it's closeted gay progressivism <clears throat> for lack of a better word and it always just immediately leans into the rainbow flag fucking circus of the Zionist uh, media as well as being unrestricted capitalist and that just means that they're trying to exploit their workers uh, to the maximum as well as generate enough revenue and profit to associate with just these elite classes that they hate they they profess to hate because in reality in the libertarian system everyone is very just cutthroat and it's all worship of money no matter what they do, they worship money. All of them are just capitalistic pigs. And Alex Jones is definitely, like, if you just look at them, it's it's like that fucking animal farm ending where the pigs are eating with the people and they can't tell when the people are pigs. You know, they can't tell which one's which. Alex Jones is that pig. <laughs> Alex Jones is that pig. But you can't tell which is which. You know, can't tell where it begins and ends. And it's just all this blending and evolution of the same fucking bloated, fat, Bureaucratic, uh, bullshit, capitalist, uh, fucking, you know, hoot and hollering, puppet, you know, leader, talking head, windbag type uh, front for this fucking military, industrial complex capitalist the world we live in. But let's get into it. Let's get into how that's all relates to the military-industrial complex, his agenda, his, his talking points, how he produces content and documentaries historically, and then uh, why that's all a cover for his true intent, and how close he can blur that line. His expertise is he can talk about things because he's talking about them in that wrong direction. It's like he can go someplace where it would be that treasure uh, X marks the spot you know, on that treasure map of truth, and he can go to that X, and then just completely miss the fucking point intentionally, so no one believes that treasure actually exists, that truth actually exists. So we're going to be reading what that is right now. It's a short little, short little essay on it, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Zionist Terracell in Austin, Texas identified. Alex Jones. <clears throat> Alex Jones has been exposing 9/11 and other crimes for many years. He is an experienced investigator. This page is some audio and video excerpts of Alex Jones to help you understand who he believes is behind these crimes. Jones explains the attacks on the USS Liberty. His recent video, Terror Storm, explains who is behind this and other crimes. I believe this was made in 2006, 2007. So Terror Storm was is canonically one of his productions of InfraWars uh, of the 2000s, 2010s. Uh, so yeah. Please listen to this audio excerpt when he summarized the attack on the USS Liberty in 1967. In a nutshell, this is what happened. President Johnson had personal control over the ship, parked it in the Mediterranean, made a backroom deal with Israel to attack it with an order to kill all aboard or sink it. Then the attack on the ship was blamed on Egypt. The U.S. would enter the war and take over the entire Middle East. Alex Jones, Terror Storm. You can watch this entire video for free at Google Video. Here's the link. Consider what Alex Jones is telling us. One, President Johnson had covered personal control. Oh, John- President Johnson had personal control over a Navy ship. Why would U.S. military give Johnson personal control over one of their ships? Does any president have personal control over any Navy ship, Air Force plane, or Army tank? Number two. Johnson made a backroom deal with Israel to attack the ship and kill everybody on board. Unfortunately, Jones does not provide any evidence that there was a backroom deal. He does not provide any documents, nor does he explain how President Johnson convinced the Israeli government and military to commit such an incredible crime against their best friend. The absurdity of this accusation should become more apparent if you imagine yourself in Israel's position. Imagine yourself getting a call from the leader of a nation you regard as a friend, such as New Zealand. The New Zealand president asks you to get your friends together, go over to one of their military bases, and kill all the New Zealand soldiers on that base. New Zealand will then blame the attack on Bolivia, and then take over all of South America. Glory to New Zealand. Would you and your friends commit such a crime? Would you be wondering, why should and my friends risk such a disgusting crime for the president of New Zealand? Alex Jones expects us to believe that the Israeli government and military are submissive and innocent victims of the selfish, murderous, and cruel American government officials, the CIA, the deep state, and the American presidency. Alex Jones wants us to feel sorry for the Israelis as pawns in the New World Order. Those of you who trust Alex Jones might want to take a moment to shed some tears for their innocent Zionists victims in all of this. Some people claim that President Johnson's support for the Vietnam War is evidence that he wanted war, but the evidence suggests that Johnson was just another criminal who was promoted to president because he would gladly follow orders from his Zionist masters. Furthermore, the evidence suggests that it was Zionists who wanted the Vietnam War, not the Pentagon. K. Gregg says that the Vietnam War was pushed on America by such people as Henry Kissinger and Walt Whitman Rostow. American government officials and our media are under the control of Zionists, not the other way around, though. The U.S. would take over the entire Middle East as a talking point. Alex Jones says that the purpose for attacking the U.S.'s liberty was to allow the U.S.A. to take over the entire Middle East in the 1960s. America was fighting the Vietnam War at the time, so starting a war in the Middle East would mean the U.S.A. would have to fight two very big wars. However, Alex Jones has no evidence that President Johnson had plans to start a second war and take over the entire Middle East. There are no battle plans, no campaigns, no generals, uh, confessions or uh, drills, you know, practices, anything runs that, uh, war games, simulations, anything. If President Johnson was truly interested in conquering other nations, why would he pick the Middle East rather than Canada or Mexico, for example? Why would he take out South America? Why not Europe? How much proof do you need? In June 2006, there was a 9-11 event in Chicago, and Alex Jones once again explained that Israel is innocent on the attack on the USS Liberty. Jones at the Chicago 9-11 event was filmed giving uh, giving this speech. Jones is a Zionist denier. There is a definite and obvious pattern with Alex Jones. He is constantly shifting blame away from Israel, Zionists, and Jews and onto the Goyim onto mysterious entities in the shadows that he nebulously refers to as the New World Order. How could such an experienced investigator as Alex Jones possibly be oblivious to the role of Zionism in world corruption? How could he possibly believe that all of the world's problems are coming from the Goyim and the Bilderberg Group or the Trilateral Commission? and not the Zionists. There is only one explanation for Alex Jones and his Zionist denial, that he is a Zionist himself, and his organization based in Austin, Texas, is a Zionist terror cell. Israel is innocent? Hardly. Jones has been studying crime and corruption for so many years, so he should have a better understanding of the role of Zionism than any of us. However, Jones does not believe that Zionists have much of an influence in America, at all. He refers to that as a conspiracy theory, one created by the deep state to make other conspiracy theorists look insane. For example, listen to Alex Jones in this speech, and gives you a link, responds to a caller when he's asked to a report that claims Israel is influencing American foreign policy, calling him anti-Semitic. He starts to answer the question, then abruptly shifts the blame to the world's problems to other groups, such as the Chinese. Sir, listen, the Communist Chinese have most of our major ports. And even reaching as far as the King of Spain, saying that our highways are being taken over by the King of Spain. He then asks his guest, David Ray Griffin, who wrote the New Pearl Harbor for his comments. But David Ray Griffin will not talk about Zionism either. In fact, nobody that goes on the Alex Jones show will seriously talk about Zionism. Coincidence? Smith thinks not. Jones has a radio show on the Genesis Communications Network. And if you have access to the archives, listen to the second and third hours of Friday, February 9, 2006 show during which he interviews Robert Galen Ross. There are several times during that show where he seems to be doing damage control, i.e. he deflects criticism away from Zionism and Israel intentionally. For example, in this excerpt, Jones tells us that the Luciferian controllers are responsible for the world's problems. Jones brings up the x-raying of 110,000 Sephardic Jewish children, but he tells us that the US government paid for the operations. This implies that the Americans were somehow involved in the Holocaust. However, Jones fails to tell us who in the American government was in charge of the Holocaust. Who helped fund it? And why did they help? What were their motivations? Most likely the funding was coming from Zionists, crypto-Jews, crypto-Zionists, and other puppets with the U.S. government or within the U.S. government with loyalties to international banking. However, by saying the U.S. government funded it, Jones deflects blame away from Zionists and onto American government individuals or uh, nebulous New World Order secret societies of Luciferians. Notice that Jones also asks, why are they always trying to kill the Jews? This brings pity to the innocent Jews who are perpetual victims of the mysterious they, the oppressor, and the anti-Semite. This is invoking tactics used by Holocaust promoters. A known Zionist trick to deflect from criticism. Jones says that the mysterious they, are always trying to kill Jews, but he fails to mention that they are, in fact, the Zionists. During the interview, Robert Galen Ross mentions that there is evidence that Hitler was an illegitimate child of one of the Rothschilds. This is very significant because if the Zionists played a large role in helping Hitler and the Nazi party, as well as the Communist Party, World War I and World War II, and eventually every other war and disaster of the 20th century, the Zionists are not the innocent victims that they pretend to be, but in fact the instigators of these disasters. However, Jones does damage control by changing the issue to the X-raying of Sephardic children in Israel and making it appear as if the mysterious they are responsible for the X-raying he fumbles for words as he tries to bring pity to Israel while blaming certain members of Israel for this action. Well, I mean, this group openly went and killed a hundred plus thousand and uh, radiated these, these, these Sephardic Jews. They Every time we look, they're killing the Jews. And then I don't understand how we're... How how could we be the bad ones? How, I mean, Barry Chamash is Jewish. He's saying exactly exactly what you're saying. Jones said, every time we look, they're killing the Jews. Once again, Jones refuses to mention that the they are, in fact, the Israeli Zionists. It doesn't matter which of his radio shows you listen to, you will find the same pattern over and over. Specifically, he blames the world's problems on a mysterious group that he refers to as the NWO, or the New World Order. A Germanic death cult connected to Nazism. The Luciferian controllers, the Western intelligence agencies, or the quote-unquote elite. This is frequented with Hitler imagery or swastikas in most of his documentaries. Why does Jones use Germanic death cult as one of his expressions? Why not Jewish death cult? Why not Zionist death cult? What about Kazarian Mafia? How about Israeli death cult? Why do so many of these truth seekers try to create the image that Germans are the only evil entity in Europe when all of the evidence suggests that the Zionists existed before, created the Third Reich, and are the problem of the aftermath involving the communists and the western NATO nations? By never mentioning the names of Zionists such as Sam Newhouse, Joe Lieberman, Sumner Redstone, Edgar Bonfan, Jones keeps his listeners in a state of confusion and fear. How can we defend ourselves from a Germanic death cult boogeyman? How is it possible for the police to arrest the Luciferian controllers in DC? Alex Jones works closely with Paul Joseph Watson and his brother Steve Watson, who live in England, both of whom are rumored to be Jewish. Their support of Israel should be considered a sign that the Watsons are crypto-Zionists at the very least. Alex Jones is married to a woman named Violet, who is Jewish. Being Jewish is not bad, but if she may be a crypto-Zionist, she is a deceiver, a criminal, a con artist, according to many. Considering that Alex Jones works and lives with suspicious people, is it any wonder that he deflects criticism of Zionism to the New World Order Perhaps Jones is also a Crypto-Jew, having converted himself. Don't let the name Jones fool you. The man credited with founding the Benai Breath was Henry Jones. That's right, I'll say that again. Don't let the surname Jones fool you. The man credited with founding the Benai Breath, his name was Henry Jones. Alex Jones promotes Zionist writer Mike Berger. Jones and his friends ignore or deny that Zionism is behind the world wars, the 9-11 attack, the assassination of President Kennedy, the attack of the USS Liberty, and many other crimes. Another example of how they deceive the gullible goyim occurred on 8th of May 2006 when Alex Jones interviewed Mike Berger of 911truth.org. By the way, Mike Berger was also selected by CNN to discuss 9-11. Mike Berger told the audience that we need to ignore where we disagree. A few moments later, Berger repeats the suggestion that we unite once again against extremist Islamists. Mike Berger wants to unite, but only if we unite under the leadership of Israel. We are willing to ignore our differences and unite if Daryl Bradford Smith, Eric Huffschmidt, and others are put in control of the united group. We want all issues out in the open, including Zionism. We refuse to unite under the leadership of Zionist deniers, personally. A few moments later, Alex Jones repeats his theory that Israel was not involved in 9-11. Notice that he blames Dick Cheney and the people above him. Who are the people above Dick Cheney? Jones never mentions their names. Rather, he refers to them as the Feds, or the New World Order, or the Germanic Death Cult. Jones tells us Bob Bowman and many others also blame Dick Cheney for 9-11. We sh- why should we care, Bob Bowman and others say? The evidence points to Zionists. Warn your friends about the Austin terrorist cell. Many of us trusted Alex Jones, and we even promoted his videos and websites over time. However, many years have passed since 9-11, and it has become obvious that he is a Zionist denier, a Holocaust promoter, a fear-mongerer, a member of the criminal network that gave us 9-11, and all other terrorist attacks. Jones and other truth-seekers deliberately refuse to discuss the role the Zionists play in corruption, wars, sex slavery, drug trafficking, and other problems internationally. It is up to you to help us to get this information out to the people. Don't Be Fooled by Bob Doman, Alex Jones, Mike Berger, Professor Jim Fetster, Webster, Tarpley, Kurt Nemo, Daily Cost, The Scholars for 9-11 Truth, Wayne Madsen, Mike Rupert, Aaron Russo, Jordan Maxwell, and other Zionist deniers. Please send your friends links to these articles, and it has a bunch of article links. Alex Jones and other Zionist deniers have murdered hundreds of millions of Goyim during the past century with their silence. And they also murdered a lot of Jews as well. If you treat these Zionist deniers as your friends, we must assume that you are either a moron or you're part of the criminal network. In either case, you are a threat to the world. End of article. And I fully agree. I will be recording the entirety of the uncensored, unabridged, and extended version of the Learned Protocols. Or the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Full documentary plus extended audio and explanations in inserted clips after this and it is for your education for your benefit and for free speech it will be published uncensored unedited and in full as an archival for this information take it or leave it as you will but it stands for fair use strictly for educational purposes and strictly as an archival of obscure and controversial material without any responsibility taken or suggested by its content or implications thereof or context surrounding viewer and listener uh, discretion advised Now, on to the Protocols of the Lorne Elders of Zion. I'm also going to include this uh, video, Proof Alex Jones is an Israel Zionist Shill, this audio, with a quote that begins, Don't you know that being deceived about the truth is a bad thing, while having a grasp of the truth is a good thing, and you think that having a grasp of the truth is having a belief that matches the way things are? Plato, the Republic. Live not by lies. Alexander Solzhenitsyn.
0: But separately, I've seen the jihadists and the Saudi Arabian money become so powerful in their influencing of Hollywood and the popular culture that they've basically gained the upper hand even against Zionism and the different varieties of Zionism that exist. The socialist Zionist, the right-wing Zionist, the global political Zionist, the atheistic Zionist. I mean, it's not one monolithic group. Just like Islam is the Shiites that are about 19%, Alawites are another 1%, some of the Zoroaster sects that became Islamic, and, and, and that small mystic tradition. And then, of course, the 80% that is Wahhabist Sunni Islam that just dominates the globe. So I've really tried to read the books on the subject from both sides and study it. And all it is is a bunch of idiocy. Because the United Nations set up by the Rockefellers and others that are ushering in this global government clearly is now anti-Israel and wants to get rid of Israel. And then they cause celeb what happens to the Palestinians and... Hype up every atrocity committed by the Israelis, which do happen because it's war. I'm not defending it. I'm not supporting it. I'm not even criticizing it. Because there's selective obsession in our corporate media with the few hundred that Israel kills a year, sometimes a few thousand if it's a major war, with jihadists running around North Africa, Eastern Africa, Central Africa, killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands a year. Hundreds of thousands killed in Syria by ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Nazra, and our media supporting it and promoting it. What I want to say is this. I want to say this out in the open. I support the Jewish state of Israel. They have been that land. That is their land. And it's the
2: UN
0: that has declared them terrorists. The UN has declared that that that, uh, Israel has been acting uh, wrongly and the U.N. supports groups that want to dissolve the state of Israel and make it a marginalized state.
4: make this video for a long time. It's a compilation of former InfoWars and Alex Jones employees and guests who have recently been speaking out about InfoWars. And some of the trends you'll notice here are that Alex Jones refuses to criticize Israel. He forces his employees to sign non-disclosure agreements. He's untrustworthy. And the reoccurring theme that just you shouldn't trust Alex Jones and that he lacks integrity. So let's get into it. The first example is former employee Rob Jacobson. He helped Alex Jones edit all of his original documentaries. He worked for Infowars for well over 10 years. And just a few months ago, he was fired from Infowars. And he's been speaking out on Facebook about Alex Jones Trying to warn us all about the fraud that Alex Jones is Here's a post on Facebook from Rob Jacobson. He says, quote, You hardly hear Alex talk about the $500 billion in weapons Trump sold to the Saudis. And when he does mention it, he has this cartoony line. Trump looked the Saudis in the eye and said, You better not use this for Islamic Jihad. You have to be stupid to buy this. But Alex says Trump is fighting ISIS instead of arming them. Trump sold the Saudis 500 billions in weapons. Alex is a duplicitous liar, and these people who remain in his audience are little thumb sucking cult members. And then Shane Bullis asks. Rob how long ago did you leave And he says a few months ago A guy that worked with Alex for over 10 years Is calling him a duplicitous liar And saying his audience Are thumb sucking cult members Now here's the clip of Rob Jacobson Speaking out against Trump And his actions That likely got him fired from
5: Infowars Last week uh, During the, uh, the Syrian missile strike I think Trump missed his opportunity to go after the COG Period that was his opportunity. That was his mm-hmm. window. And instead of going after him, he went with them. And I understand what Mike Cernovich said about, oh, this is a big boy world and a big boy place. And uh, I gave that a lot of thought and how when you become the president and you step onto a large playing field, you have to start playing the game with the big boys. Uh-uh, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. We've, we elected a leader and what we got is the same old stuff. Okay. See, and, and, and I agree with that, and I think that... I'm going to tell you where Mike was wrong. Go ahead. Okay? He was saying that, um, you know, you got to become part of the game. And what we wanted was somebody to lead us through the fog, not become part of the fog, and that's where he failed. And when he launched those missiles, he became part of the fog. He lost. It's over. I'm sorry. I mean... We should be going after the COG. We should be going after them. And that was our opportunity. And what Trump could have done is he could have said, let me step back, let me do an investigation, and let me expose the fact that it was people part of the COG, people who are in our government that committed this crime. Let's expose those people and yank them out. But instead of it, he became those people. It's over. It's over. What if China is behind North Korea? How do we know? There's a big piece of chocolate cake that was very impressive. We don't know this stuff. We got a guy in there. It's over. He's beaten. That's my point of view. Unless he could humble himself and come out to the American people and say, I was played. I'm going to backtrack on that. I'm going to expose the COG. I'm going to expose the criminals in our government. We have no shot. That's my point. And that's why Rob Jacobson needs his own radio show. Pat, go ahead. Good one, dude. Sure, you're going
4: to give Rob Jacobson uh, his own radio show. I'm guessing you mean somewhere else besides Infowars, because he was fired right after this. And here's another example of Rob Jacobson admitting that Alex refuses to criticize Israel, which is an accusation that many people throw at Alex Jones, and now one of his long-term former employees is confirming it. Alex Jones refuses to criticize Israel, because he's obviously a big fat Zionist shill. Rob Jacobson writes, I agree, they never touch Israel. They selectively talk about Trump. Alex lately is very critical of others' behavior while he acts out in the most insane ways. I'm normal, I'm normal. They've become the national inquirer of the internet media world. This guy does some great stuff. we played his videos in the past, it's no more news. The next example is former Alex Jones sidekick, Aaron Dykes. Who a few years ago left InfoWars So here's Aaron Dykes on Facebook He says the long awaited Obama Deception 2 So he's mocking Alex Jones For never coming out with the Obama Deception 2 Like he had promised And here on the left he says Eight years ago you ragged on Obama supporters Who bought into hope and change And on the right he has uh, Trump Trump's face over Obama's and it says, this time the deception is on you. So it's former Alex Jones sidekick, great researcher and reporter at InfoWars, is trying to tell all the InfoWarriors out there do not listen to Alex Jones, do not fall for Trump, they are both compromise puppets. Next we have a clip of Aaron Dykes and his wife Melissa Melton who both worked at InfoWars and it's them on a radio show shortly after they quit InfoWars talking about the NDAs and the suspicious activity going on at InfoWars. Here it is.
6: I don't I wouldn't I don't know even what to believe anymore about I've heard so many crazy things in the last couple of weeks alone. Things I can't talk about or say. I mean, I yes, we signed non disclosure agreements at that place. Everyone knows this. Everyone has to sign one. Well most people have to sign one. And yes, since we left, we're in the you know, we've been not so subtly reminded multiple times that we signed that and that we better shut our freaking mouths here's the thing if i wanted to be at infowars i would be at infowars i would still be there aaron would still be there we quit okay we did choose to leave and we quit and we left and now we're doing what we're doing now if we wanted to still be embroiled in the drama or dealing with the BS or doing it, we would still have, we would not have quit, right? We would have still be there. We don't want to be there. There's a reason we're not there. That's why. And I'm, I, I, I hate it because I have people that I care about, people on Facebook that I'm friends with, and they keep asking me to say a bunch of stuff. And it's like, okay, I don't, I have children it's not i guess i guess if we get sued and screamed at or what i mean you know they could take my nothing that i don't have but i mean it's kind of like i just want to focus on the work i'm trying to do i don't want to get mired in all of this infighting and blacklisting and the bs because it just goes on and on and it's pointless in the end of the day because we're all trying to supposedly do the same thing here
4: next we have another alex jones former protege anthony gucciardi who recently left InfoWars, we don't know why or how he hasn't publicly admitted it alex jones has been silent about him leaving like he usually is when he has falling out with all of his employees and so anthony gucciardi is gone now he used to be like his number one sidekick now he's just on twitter and facebook posting inspirational quotes i think he's something's going on with gucciardi i wish he would talk to me i've tried to contact him but he won't respond probably out of fear of the ndas and the Threats like Melissa and Aaron Just spoke about but here is a Secret recording that somebody secretly recorded Anthony Gucciardi at a restaurant or a bar, and it was when he first started working with Alex Jones. Listen to what Anthony Gucciardi says about Alex Jones as a person, like his character and his ego and his integrity. To him, the only thing that matters is his, his fame and his, his, his power of you know the industry. He, he basically told me that he hates every single on one of his reporters and that they suck. Next up, we have former editor and webmaster at Infowars.com, Kurt Nemo, who was recently fired from Infowars for not going along with the Trump cheerleading. Here uh, Kurt Nemo told the Daily Beast in this article, The War Inside InfoWars, Kurt Nemo tells the Daily Beast that he has noticed the general framework and voice of the site shift into becoming essentially a pro-Trump propaganda outfit, something that he perceives as an abandonment of InfoWars' initial focus on the New World Order, or as Jones would call it, the establishment. I totally agree. I've witnessed this shift take place myself. Nemo said in an email to the Daily Beast, I disagree with Alex Jones on Donald Trump. I believe Donald Trump is an enabler of crony capitalism, the same as his predecessors. I also believe he will not end the wars started by Bush and continued by Obama. I cannot support a man who will further war and murder. Alex Jones has more or less ignored this and considers Trump a patriot and a defender of the Constitution. This is clearly wrong. Support for Trump also means supporting waterboarding, killing the families of suspected terrorists, squandering trillions more on a bloated military, supporting Israel despite its crimes against humanity, omitting Saudi Arabia from the list of terrorist states, and further militarizing police in the U.S. Alex Jones previously opposed most of these things, with the exception of Israel, which he has refused to criticize. Okay, I don't want to hear Alex Jones ever say that he fairly criticizes Israel. He doesn't. Everybody says he's a Zionist shill. He refuses to criticize Israel. And here is Alex Jones's former editor of Infowars' website and the webmaster admitting Alex Jones, quote, has refused to criticize Israel. Kurt Nemo also takes some shots at Alex Jones's current sidekick, Paul Joseph Watson. He says, quote, If we are to judge Paul Joseph Watson by his editorials and tweets, he is an Islamophobe little different than... Geert Wilders or Pamela Geller He has embraced the alt-right philosophy on Islam. I disagree with this. The United States government and the military-industrial complex are far more threatening to our liberty than a gaggle of crazy Islamists, many supported by the CIA in Saudi Arabia Paul Joseph Watson wasn't claiming back then that Islam would destroy the world. In fact, he wrote radical jihadis were created by the CIA and British intelligence Guess he doesn't talk about that much anymore Kurt Nemo says, quote I don't know if revealing this is part of the confidentiality agreement, but I cannot consent to Watson lying about him. Yeah, Alex Jones and Watson told everybody that Kurt Nemo was lazy, and that's why they fired him, but we all know it's because Kurt Nemo wasn't going along with the Trump cheerleading. Nemo continues that... He was told by other former employees that Alex Jones was angry about his repeated requests for health care insurance. My wife and I are in our mid-60s, and I find it unconscionable for the multi-million dollar operation not to provide health insurance for employees. I merely do not wish for the article to say I was let go due to poor work performance. We know that's not true, Kurt. We know Alex Jones is a fraud, and he fired you because you are not a yes-man that agrees with everything the dictator authoritarian Alex Jones. Next up, we have another former Alex Jones sidekick, Luke Radowski from We Are Change. He posts on Facebook and says, This is why alternative media can't have nice things really, bro? Come on. And he links to an InfoWars article with the headline, 10 times that God has hit America with a major disaster after the U.S. attempted to divide the land of Israel. Because Barack Obama has cursed Israel, the United Nations, America is now under a curse. What a joke. This is from Alex Jones who claims he's not a Zionist. He says that we're cursed if we don't support and defend Israel no matter what. An absolute rabid Zionist would say that. And We didn't curse Israel at the United Nations. Fifteen other countries voted that the settlements are illegal and Israel is doing illegal war crimes against uh, the apartheid Palestinians. All America did was abstain their veto vote. Fifteen other countries voted and America just decided to not veto it like they always do every year. We're protecting them because they own us. If you look at this article that they posted, it is ridiculous. They basically say that... Every time we do something bad to Israel, we get a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado, and it's just such a joke. I mean the fear he wants us to think that God is attacking us because we don't support Israel, but he's not a Zionist, sure. Next up we have Luke Radowski interviewing former longtime guest of InfoWars Show, David Ike. He hasn't been back on since the Trump era came to be, but It's Luke and David Icke criticizing Alex Jones, not by name, but they're definitely talking about him, for cheerleading for Trump and for betraying all the things that Alex Jones and Infowars supposedly stood for in the past.
7: We had a very important conversation last night, especially when it comes to the state of alternative
8: media. Uh, What is the state of alternative media, David? Well, I think it's um, it's sad the way... um, some of the alternative media has gone in fact quite a significant uh, part of it particularly in the United States this man is going to take on what they call the globalists and as a result of that the the narrative has changed in these parts of the alternative media from you can't trust any of them it's all a rigged system to actually it is rigged uh, against Trump in favour of Clinton and I see is some areas of the alternative media becoming little more than an alternative Fox News. Now terrorist events are not being dissected in the way they were before by this particular area of the alternative media anyway. They're being used as a means to bash Muslims and to cast all Muslims um, with the actions of a few. I find it very unpleasant to see videos um, from um, alternative uh, researchers uh, talking about uh, the hate of islam and the the way it's a hate religion and they're delivering those uh, videos with absolute hatred in their eyes and in their face what um, i'm sure many people who've kind of followed the alternative media i'm sure many of them are, are a bit confused about what's going on it's not the way anything's going to change, because what they're doing is becoming that which they um, claim to be exposing. They're becoming the polarity. They're becoming the the means for divide and rule, instead of bringing people uh, together. For me, it borders on the embarrassing for the uh, for the alternative media. It's it's embarrassing, but it also has a way of showing people who really is
7: in the game because this regression as you called it like we've been talking about last night is massive it's expansive we went from people saying the system is rigged don't vote for the lesser of two evils to saying
4: well let's trust the system well he's a little bit less evil let's put all of our faith and energy into this and here's one more short clip of david ike calling out alternative media people like alex jones who refuse to call out rothschild zionism most
8: people the overwhelming majority of people in what we call conspiracy research won't touch this subject right well i'm gonna bloody touch it because i'm sick of it and i'm sick of people being um frightened and intimidated into not touching it rothschild
4: zionism now we have another former wingman of alex jones jason Burmis, who helped produce uh, the hit documentaries Loose Change, Invisible Empire, Fabled Enemies, and here he is calling out Alex Jones for his cheerleading for Trump and for his uh, lack of ethics and morals when it comes to objectively covering the Trump administration.
9: Now, unfortunately, we also
4: live in a day
9: and age where some of the alternative media seem to be cheerleaders for the Trump administration. To ignore the fact that Goldman Sachs is heavily represented in this administration, to ignore the fact that his technology advisor, Peter Thiel, sits on the board of Bilderberg, to ignore the fact that he's dealing with Saudi Arabia, who we know have been arming Islamic jihadis for
4: some time now, and spin that as though that's not happening. Is very dangerous as well. Even Ron Paul has been calling out Alex Jones. In this clip, he says Alex Jones sounds like a neocon with his bomb North Korea propaganda. I
0: don't want to have to, you know, nuke the DMZ. Uh, but if they do strike us first, I think they may be crazy enough to do it. Uh, then it's going to take um, um, a major commitment to make sure they can't counter respond. You're, you're, buying, you're buying into all the garbage that's passed out there by the deep state and neoconservatives and and the media Alex, you're speaking for the neoconservatives. That's their line of talk of why we have to do this.
4: Now we have another former longtime guest on the Alex Jones InfoWars show, Wayne Madsen, also speaking out against Alex Jones. Just a few months ago, Alex Jones was talking about hiring Wayne, and and Wayne went to the RNC and the DNC to report for InfoWars. But now Wayne is speaking out like he should because Alex Jones is a fraud. Here's a tweet that Wayne put up where he says, Alex Jones amends his his remarks to show he is still crazier than a shit house rat and here's another tweet where he says that alex jones photoshops trump on wwe matt in 2013 making it appear that it is shakespeare on the park play jones is a bloated lying shit bag so harsh words from wayne for alex jones well deserved and here's a clip of Wayne on the Richie Allen show, and they're speaking about the terrible things that have been happening at InfoWars.
10: But these people have no idea what they're talking about, and that includes Alex Jones and the rest. I don't know what deals he's cut. Maybe he's been given uh, a promise by Trump that the InfoWars and his, you know, selling of uh, uh, Dr. Fieldgood snake oil will, will have it carved out uh, a special amount of bandwidth on the
11: internet. Wayne, I'm going to pick you up on what you said about InfoWars, and I'm doing that because you're not the first guest who's been on the program recently who has had a relationship with um, InfoWars, who's um, become frustrated or disheartened by what's been going on there. Now, I put my cards on the table. I've known Alex for about 10 years, and I used to invite him to come on my programs regularly, and he did. And we had some pretty interesting conversations over the years. But um, what I've seen, especially leading up to the election, the blanket support of Donald Trump, the let's be honest about it, Wayne, you're a journalist, the dreadful, disgraceful interview that Alex did with Trump when he never challenged him or asked him a single question. What happened to Infowars? Was, was it something that was building... Were, was Alex always kind of like that? Was he always ambitious to place his brand alongside Fox News? Or has something more sinister happened there in recent years, in your opinion?
10: Well, my take is that, um, uh, look, you know, uh, many, many people have said through the years there's no such thing as uh, bad publicity. There's only publicity. And he's, he's gotten good and bad. Uh, Trump has helped him immensely. Uh, and I, I believe uh, he was in negotiations to try to carve out uh, something on uh, on the cable, uh, one of the cable news networks. Now that's that's good and fine, but you know, sometimes overachieving or too much success can ruin uh, an entity. Sometimes you can overachieve; you you try to grab off more, and then you lose your base. Uh, you're trying to please people in Hollywood, and uh, you totally disconnect from people in, you know, uh, rural Oklahoma, for example. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I think that's I think that's what's happening uh, in, in Austin, Texas, to a large degree.
11: And you can't all of a sudden start saying things that you don't really believe in to suit another audience to bring more viewers your way. And Alex was very much of the understanding that. You know, Democrats, Republicans, two sides of the same coin, the oligarchs, as you said, Wayne, control all of that. And Alex was pretty principled in saying that for many, many years. And then, of course, he abandoned that principle. It's brought him a lot of extra viewers and listeners, no doubt about that. But it's a tragedy, really, is is my opinion. Being a psychophant for the president is not being a journalist. and,
4: And the
10: constant
4: exaggerations... And finally, we'll end it with a few statements from former Alex Jones, quote, wingman, Jack Blood. For years, I propped up Alex Jones.
12: For years, I had to answer for his behavior, make excuses for it. I'm not just somebody that, you know, is online that listens to this stuff. I was inside. I hosted that show, okay. Many of you remember. In fact, I'm going to play a clip here in a second. I, I hosted the Alex Jones show many, many, many times. What I'm telling you is that what comes from Alex Jones Corp is not honest. He is not an honest broker. He could care less, really, about Texas, about liberty, about the Republic, about 9/11 truth. All he cares about is controlling controlling the country controlling the world these are the very people that if they ever take over are going to be 10 times worse than the oppressors you have now because they have no conscience that they'll say anything to get hits on their website they don't care you did some work with Alex Jones yeah I was so I was his wingman I used to go uh, help him pick up girls I hosted his show I worked with him intimately for for quite a few years and he's changed He's not the same guy he used to be. And Alex Jones has a little cult. I know people think that, you know, I'm I'm some, you know, jealous ninny or something talking about stuff like this. But I want people to know that you, I want to spare them from what happened to me and what's happened to so many people out there. But the
4: guy is absolutely 100% fake. So there you have it, everybody. All of Alex Jones's ex-employees are speaking out and trying to warn his listeners about the fraud that he is. Alex Jones is a Zionist gatekeeper. All of his former wingmen, sidekicks, acolytes, protégés have all spoken out against him. They're trying to warn us. And I'm trying to warn you, because I haven't signed the NDA. Imagine, just imagine what all of these ex-employees would be saying if they weren't forced and threatened with these NDAs. I never signed one. I would have never signed one. I can't believe I ever wanted to work for Alex Jones. He's such a Zionist shill. Trump is a Zionist puppet, and Alex Jones has really revealed himself as a compromised propagandist fraud at this latest election. The paradigm of absolute control.
0: And that's why we're just out here doing simple things, pointing out that we're meant to be in nature and be natural. And this is where we find the source that God made to transcend the new world order. And that's why they want to try to keep us out of it.
13: I'm angry. I've had enough of these people. Bones of Christian murderous scum Now a giant death factories Keeping babies alive Selling their body parts What more do you need to know About these people I go out and face these scum They literally Crawl out from under rocks. They have green looking skin And they run around screaming We love Satan, we wanna eat babies I have them on video is in the creepy, weird sixth of men She sleeps in the same room with that creepy, weird woman Whose mother wears her foot over her head what the hell? That woman number one is ugly Imagine how bad she smells, man I'm told her Aunt Obama just stinks Obama and Hillary both smell like sofa yeah, Near vampire, roof and the goblins A hobbling round coming after us My spirit gets close to that evil and I feel it go high Such self-centered crap, we don't even know this had itself rising up against us. Millions of punishment people of the very worst type, and I'm so pissed We're gonna stay
9: Russia, 1917 November Revolution Germany, 1918 1949 Revolution China There's been 30 communist revolution attempts throughout the world resulting in 94 million deaths With these revolutions also came a loss of freedom and the moral decay of the host nation. History has told us that there has been an international conspiracy to bring all nations under a one world communist government. Will America be next to fall to this international conspiracy? The answer to this question might come from a top secret document discovered in Russia in the late 19th century twenty years before the Russian Revolution. This secret document contained the plans for world domination. These protocols were transcript notes taken from a meeting of Jewish Zionist leaders from around the world. From this one meeting, the innermost circle of the rulers of Judaism received the methods for conquering the world. not intended to be read by non-Jews, these protocols have been published in every major language under the title, The Protocols of Zion. When these protocols were first released to the public, Zionist Jews everywhere screamed and complained that these 24 protocols were a hoax, a forgery, even a blood against the Jews. However, since the discovery and publication of the protocols, history itself has thus far been written according to the content and intent of the protocols, with the first example being the brutal and barbaric Bolshevik revolution in Russia, led by covert Jews such as Lenin, Trotsky, Kaganovich, and others. The Jewish people make up less than 2% of any nation's population, but yet they are the top 1% of the wealthiest, most powerful individuals. And the industries they control are consistent with the content of what the protocols laid out over a century ago. In this film, we'll examine the protocols with current events in history. And we'll see if the protocols are consistent with what is happening in our world. And you can decide for yourself whether the protocols of Zion are a forgery or the playbook intended to destroy Christianity and reign in humanity's greatest enemy to come, the Jewish Antichrist.
10: Were I a Jew, I would be a Zionist. And my father pointed out to me, I did not need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. For I am. Israel is essential to the security of Jews
2: worldwide.
14: Jews are actually the Canaanites, who were known as Edomites, across the river and up in the mountains of Mount Seir, and they didn't become, quote, Israelites until 125 BC, when the last real king of Judah and high priest defeated them in Edomia. Incredibly, unlike David in 1000 BC, he told them, be circumcised or die. So all those Jews decided to join the Israelite religion in 125 BC. They wrote none of the Bible. There was no such thing as a Jewish prophet, ever. Daniel was not a Jew. Jeremiah was not a Jew. Esther was not a Jew. All of these people were Israelites. And we Israelites were captured by the Assyrians in 745 BC and taken in captivity and escaped there and went up to the Caucasus Mountains through the pass of Israel and came out on the other side known as Caucasians went into the wilderness of Europe and founded the many nations for our father Abraham. And of course, hundreds of years later, after our captivity in Babylon, which the Jews had nothing to do with except to help the Babylonians capture us in 586 B.C. when they came and besieged Jerusalem. And so the Babylonians hauled us off to captivity, at least the last two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, to Babylon for 70 years of captivity as punishment for our sins. And uh, it was at that time when the Babylonians had surrounded the city of Jerusalem that our prophet, not a Jewish prophet, our Israelite prophet, Jeremiah, got some guys together and carted the Ark of the Covenant into his cave well what Jeremiah didn't know was that his cave was directly under where the cross of Christ would go 500 years later and that when the earthquake split the rock under the cross Christ's blood would drip down and sprinkle the most holy the Ark of the Covenant the lid of the Ark of the Covenant It was the atonement for us Israelites because Yahweh only had a contract with us and nobody else. And that's why Jesus told his disciples to go only to the lost house of Israel. And he told them that that's why he talked in parables because those Jews who had just recently joined the Israelite religion in 125 B.C., had no need to know any of this and so he made it somewhat obscure when he said things and this is why he told his disciples that he had only come for the lost house of israel and if you'll read the beginning of the book of james you'll see that he addresses his book only to the house of israel scattered abroad and graphics that will help you understand that we anglo-saxons are the real israelites and the jewish people are the edomites who were forced to join the israelite religion when john and Cranus ii defeated them in Edomiah. and of course Edomia is just greek for edom if you look on your bible maps you'll see that edom was there quite a while back In the time of David, and you can read about how David went over and slaughtered Edomites for six months in 1 Kings chapter 11, and that was when God sent David to kill off the Jews, but Hadad, the prince of Edom, got away and fled to Egypt, where he grew up and married an Egyptian wife and came back to Edom later, which is how the Edomites wound up helping the Assyrians capture us and then helping the Babylonians capture us in 586 BC. And as you'll see, as you study the Bible and look at these uh, interesting charts, the Jews
9: don't even own uh, Hanukkah. Today, there seems to be a lot of confusion about the Jewish people and who they are. Are they a race? Are they a religion? is a Jew is not defined by a race of people but by a religion that one practices. It is important to note that a person's moral character is not shaped by the color of his skin but by his religious worldview. Therefore, in order to better understand the protocols of Zion, We need to first examine the people who wrote them by understanding the religion that inspired it.
15: Since Judaism is very much a religion of its literature, we need to go where its most sacred teachings are preserved. We need to go to a synagogue, in particular, the library of a synagogue. In every synagogue library we find hundreds of books, but there are a few which tower above the rest in authority. These include the Encyclopedia Judaica, the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia, the Jewish Encyclopedia. In the oldest of these, the Jewish Encyclopedia, we encounter fascinating new perspectives on the inner teachings of Judaism, perspectives which are well known to most religious Jews, but unknown to Christians.
16: Most Christians believe that the Judaism of the Old Testament is very similar to Judaism today. Yet the Jewish Encyclopedia, in its article on Judaism, says modern Judaism and the Judaism of the Old Testament are very different. It says that after Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah in the 6th century B.C. and led the Jews to distant Babylon, the Jews were faced with challenges to their faith they had never before experienced. Ever since the time of Solomon, the religion of Israel had centered around the magnificent temple in Jerusalem with its sacrifices and rituals. The question now became, how could one be a true Jew in a very foreign, even hostile, environment? The need arose for a certain class of lay priests called scribes or sophura to interpret the law in this new setting and make it workable. In time, these scribes became what the New Testament calls the Scribes and Pharisees, the greatest legal authorities of Israel for all ages. The Pharisees said there were really two inspired revelations to the Jews. There was the written law of Moses received atop Sinai, but there was also the oral tradition acquired by 70 elders who came to the base of the mountain but were forbidden to proceed farther. The Pharisees said that these 70 elders, or Sanhedrin, received a much more extensive and profound revelation than Moses, a revelation which was never written down, yet took precedent over the written law. When Jesus came on the scene, his reaction was to bitterly denounce this counterfeit tradition. Christ said the Pharisees, by their tradition, had made the law of God of none effect. He considered the Pharisees the most dangerous leadership Israel ever had. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Although Jewish sects such as the Sadducees now disappeared, the Pharisees emerged with even greater power over the Jewish people. The Jewish Encyclopedia describes the new role of the Pharisees. With the destruction of the temple, the Sadducees disappeared altogether, leaving the regulation of all Jewish affairs in the hands of the Pharisees. Henceforth, Jewish life was regulated by the Pharisees. The whole history of Judaism was reconstructed from the Pharisaic point of view. Pharisaism shaped the character of Judaism and the life and thought of the Jew for all of the future. In 135 A.D., all Jews were expelled from Palestine. The Pharisees led most Palestinian Jews in a mass migration back to Babylon. The majority of Jews were already in Babylon and had been since the time of Nebuchadnezzar 600 years earlier. Yet around 140 A.D., Babylon became the acknowledged land of refuge for world Jewry. Another thousand years, Judaism flourished in Babylon under the leadership of the Pharisees. Great academies of the rabbis were established, and thousands of new laws formulated. There, those same Pharisees who killed Jesus Christ remained the undisputed rulers of Judaism.
15: In Babylon, the Pharisees codified their oral traditions into the Babylonian Talmud, the written form of that oral tradition which Jesus so bitterly rebuked. The Talmud reveals how deep was Israel's apostasy. In her beginning, God gave the Hebrews the loftiest, the most upright literature and ethics the world has ever known. Yet when they turned their backs on him, they produced the Talmud, a work which has aptly been called a monument to human folly. The Talmud also helps us
16: understand the basis for Christ's unflattering descriptions of the Pharisees. Jesus described the Pharisees as hypocrites, children of hell, blind guides, whited sepulchres, full of dead men's bones. He even described the Pharisees as children of their father, the devil, a murderer from the beginning. The Talmud confirms Christ's words. In the Talmud, in treatise Sanhedrin, an extensive passage describes the right of the Pharisee to kill anyone, just as long as he did so indirectly. As one of dozens of examples, the Talmud tells us that if one bound his neighbor and he died of starvation, he is not liable to execution. In such an indirect manner, the Pharisees also killed Christ. Manipulating the Romans to actually wield the spear and sword, the Pharisees claimed, as their descendants do today, that since the Romans were the direct cause of the death of Christ, it is the Romans, not the Jews, who are guilty. Christ also called the Pharisees adulterers, an adulterous generation. The Talmud provides generous loopholes for adultery. It says the penalty for adultery does not include sex with a minor, the wife of a minor, or the wife of a heathen. The Talmud also encourages seduction of unwed adolescent girls called designated bondmaids. But it's important how such rapes are performed. With the designated bondmaid, one is guilty only in the case of natural connection, but not in the case of perverse connection. The Pharisees reasoned that rape in a perverted manner is outside the jurisdiction of the law. Normal rape, however, was punishable. In Babylon, sexual perversion of every kind had been a way of life for millenniums. The Pharisees were deeply influenced by such practices.
15: In three of the major treatises of the Talmud are found extensive passages which give legal endorsement to seduce and marry three-year-old baby girls. In fact, many of the greatest rabbis of the Talmud, including Simeon Ben-Yohai, upheld this privilege. Today in Israel, thousands of Jews go to Meron every year to venerate the memory of Simeon Ben-Yohai, one of the most respected rabbis in the history of Judaism. I went to the
7: public library, found the volumes of the Babylonian Talmud that they had there, opened them up, and found this, irrefutable, undeniable proof that the Talmud, the Jewish holy book, condones and encourages pedophilia. Kethabath 11b says... When a grown-up man has intercourse with a little girl, it is nothing, for when the girl is less than this, it is as if one puts the finger into the eye. Sanhedrin 55b says, Come and hear, a maiden aged three years and a day may be acquired in marriage by coition, and if her deceased husband's brother cohabits with her, she becomes his. Sanhedrin 69a says, a maiden aged three years and a day may be acquired in marriage by coition. Coition means sexual intercourse. Yebamot 60b says, a proselyte who is under the age of three years and one day Is permitted to marry a priest, for it is said, but all the women children that have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves. So there you have it. You can go to the library and do the same thing I did. The real question is, though, what are you going to do about it?
16: One of dozens of endorsements of child sex, Simeon Ben-Yohai said, A proselyte under the age of three years and a day is permitted to marry a priest. Agreeing with Ben-Yohai, the great Rabbah said, When a grown-up man has intercourse with a little girl, it is nothing. For when the girl is less than this three years and a day, it is as if one put the finger into the eye. The footnote to this passage says, As tears come to the eye again and again, So does virginity come back to the little girl under three years. The same section confirms that sexual activity with small boys is in the same category. The intercourse of a small boy is not regarded as a sexual act. In addition to adulterers, Christ, in the story of the Good Samaritan, portrayed the Pharisees as racial bigots too self-righteous to respond to the suffering of one who was not a Jew. The Talmud was finally written down nearly five centuries after Christ. Yet its critical,
15: even homicidal attitudes toward Gentiles might have been lifted out of the book of Joshua. However, the quickest way to grasp the Talmudic view of Gentiles is not directly from the Talmud, but from the Jewish encyclopedias. If we quote an isolated opinion from the Talmud, a rabbi may quickly object, saying, But that is not the overall opinion of the Talmud. That is not the definitive view. What the Jewish Encyclopedia provides us is a definitive overview of perhaps hundreds of rabbinic statements on any subject, giving us accurate summaries of what the Talmud generally
16: teaches. In its article on Gentiles, the Jewish Encyclopedia begins to define what makes a Jew so different from a Gentile. According to the rabbis, only Israelites are men. Gentiles they class not as men, but as barbarians. Since Gentiles are not men in the fullest sense, so the Gentile is not a neighbor of a Jew. Further, since Gentile laws were too crude to admit of reciprocity, meaning too crude to be taken seriously, the Gentile was forever beneath the Jew. Gentiles were outlawed by God from the beginning and thus had no property rights. The Almighty offered the Torah to the Gentile nations also, But since they refused to accept it, he withdrew his shining legal protection from them and transferred their property rights to Israel, who observed his law. Since the Talmud outlawed the child, or issue of a Gentile, as that of a beast, a Gentile had as little legal rights in a Jewish court as did an animal. The Talmud states that if a Gentile sue an Israelite, the verdict is for the defendant, the Israelite. Conversely, if the Israelite is the plaintiff, he obtains full damages. Because the Talmud conspires against Gentiles, if a Jew was ever caught telling a Gentile what the Talmud really says, such a person deserves death. So vile was the nature of a Gentile that the great Simeon Ben-Yohai said, the best among the Gentiles deserves to be killed. The best of snakes ought to have its head crushed. Jews, however, are exalted beings in the Talmud, worthy of praise. Christ described the Pharisee who blessed himself, saying, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not his other men. An eminent Talmudic rabbi says the same. Blessed be thou who hast not made me a Goy, or a Gentile. There is a special antagonism between the Talmud and Jesus. The Talmud attacks him everywhere it can, even his mother. Mary, the Talmud says, was a whore who mated with carpenters. She, who was the descendant of princes and governors, played the harlot with carpenters. It naturally followed that the scribes declared Christ to be a bastard. In its article on Jesus, the Jewish encyclopedia says that Jewish writings defame Christ. It is the tendency of all these sources to belittle the person of Jesus by ascribing to him illegitimate birth, magic, and a shameful death. Jesus, according to this article, was considered one of the three worst enemies of Judaism, who came to an ignoble end. The Talmud says, they subjected him to four deaths, stoning, burning, decapitation, and strangling. The Talmud also says, he is now in hell, punished with boiling hot excrement. What is Christ's advice as he speaks to us out of hell? The Jewish Encyclopedia quotes Jesus as telling us above all to bless the Jews. He says, Further their well-being. Do nothing to their detriment. Whoever touches them touches even the apple of his eye. Christians as followers of the false prophet Jesus also deserve death. The Jewish Encyclopedia again recaps the Talmud's position. A Gentile observing the Sabbath deserves death. It says the Talmud's hatred was probably directed against the Christian Jews. These Judeo-Christians evasively called Min, Minit, or Minim were considered by the rabbis to be the most dangerous form of heretics of ancient times. The New Testament Gospels were writings which the rabbis considered more dangerous to the unity of Judaism than those of the pagans. A Talmudic rabbi said, The writings of Christians deserve to be burned, for paganism is less dangerous than minute or Christianity. The Jewish Encyclopedia, in its article on men, continues to illustrate the Talmudic hatred of Christianity. Again, we must remember, minnum usually indicates the Judeo-Christians. It was forbidden to partake of meat, bread, or wine with the Christian scrolls of the law, tefillin, and mezuzot written by a Christian were burned. An animal slaughtered by a Christian was forbidden food. The relatives of the Christian were not permitted to observe the laws of mourning after his death, but were required to assume festive garments and rejoice. The testimony of a Christian was not admitted in evidence in Jewish courts, and an Israelite who found anything belonging to one who was a Christian was forbidden to return it to him. The Pharisees, through their Talmud, thus gave the Jews an ethic which
17: encouraged bigotry and isolation. Hi, everybody, and also I I hope that my English will be enough to explain what's my question. Okay, we just learned about the Moshe, how he helped all the jewish people go through the egypt and through the red sea so why we have to believe that the god to the version that's the god or miracle help to moshe to take all jewish people and walk through the sea while we don't believe that jesus walk
4: through the sea the question is
11: we're just starting about Moses, but we do know that later on in the story, well, at the rate we're going, it might be in two years from now, Moses is going to lead the Jews out of Egypt and we will cross the Red Sea.
4: So why do we believe that Moses led the Jews to the Red Sea, but we don't believe that Jesus
18: walked on water? Well, very simply, why, why don't you go back a little further? Why do you believe that Moses, uh, in the Torah, the Old Testament, why not believe in the New Testament? That's the same question. I'd go back even to further A and, and more basic question Not just one action of Splitting the sea and walking under the water Go back and ask why do we Believe in the Old Testament Why don't we live in the New Testament I Ask that question That will answer this question too And this answer is very very simple Because that is very important to know The big difference between the Jewish Tradition And the non-Christian Or any other religion could. Position is that at the time that God gave the Torah to Mount Sinai, there were millions of people that witnessed it. They saw God coming down with the lightning and the thunder, speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu, and all the action that happened at that time. That God spoke to them, they heard His sp- speaking, the voice speaking to them, was witnessed by millions of people. By any other religion, first the Yoshka that I don't want to say his name, Yashka that you're talking about. He was not witnessed by anybody. Maybe one or two of us had five disciples. And they decided that he is God's son. And the whole thing that the baloney story about, you know, about he's the son of God and the whole trinity, the whole thing. So this was uh, something that was made up by one person, a few people. They came along and told people, hey, look what happened. God changed his mind. He gave a new law. Took away the old Torah gave a new Torah. What are you talking about? God came down with millions of people, gave the Torah, and they told their children afterwards, millions of people, t- tens of thousands of people, gave over to every, to every generation, the next generation. And this is the true Torah that God gave. can come along and say, a guy made up a story that, you know, that God changed his mind, and I'm the son of God, and he's, what are you talking about? He'd come along and believe in a story like that. So what am to say, I'm the son of God. Even if he makes miracles. He can make miracles. Maybe he made miracles. miracles. God tells us in the Torah. If somebody comes up and tells you this change the Torah, and he makes miracles. Don't believe him. He can make miracles, but he is not my He's not my emissary. He's not my person giving over to you. I gave my man as Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses gave the Torah to the Jewish people. God will never change his mind. And this is the true religion. And we have millions of people saw it. So anything but, but the New Testament, the Testament's false. There's nothing, no truth to it. It says, by a few people that came along, and they talked a lot of people into it, and it's very convenient. It says, in the turn, openly, don't, I, there's no form, God has no form. There's no, It's not a man, he's not an animal, not, not in the heavens, not in the earth. They come along, no, he's God. Well, ten commandments. It says, don't believe in any other forms of, 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 of God. God has no form. They come along now, I'm oh, a son of God There's a form, as a person. So this is why we don't believe in the New Testament. It's null and void.
5: Seems somebody didn't get the gist of it, so I'm going to try to recap quickly. I think they. I, I'm, I'm going to try to be the answer. Maybe everything was a sign or how they came, but, uh, but uh, so the question is, why do we believe that it was a miracle? What? Why do we believe it was a miracle that the sea split? Maybe it
10: was a tsunami that happened to come by just at that time, which is also a miracle.
18: Which would also be a miracle, right? Angel, that would also be a miracle. A tsunami came and split just... That's how God works, right? Well, we know because God Not exactly told Moshe, they told it from before. No, but I'm saying
4: if, there was a, if the sea split by some act of nature just when the Jews had to go by and the Jews went through and then as the Egyptians came and it's burst it down on them, that would also be a miracle. Yeah, you know, we could say, well,
18: I don't know, it wasn't a miracle. I mean, once you believe in God, everything's a miracle. But I'm saying nobody can, can say that because it says in the... Term, no, she's saying, that well, who it says it was it a miracle? Was said from before, God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, put your hand step, and split the sea. It's going to split. He told them in advance of happened. It. If it's a... Natural uh, phenomena that, by itself, you can't predict. It's going to happen. God said from before, "I'm going to make the blood the sea split." So it wasn't a thing to happen all of a by itself. There was fore foretold that this is what's going to happen. So this, I call the ten plagues, were to- to- told from before. Each one, blood, is blood. Told from before, it's going to be blood. Became blood. So everything was foretold from from the very beginning. So, but we, we, we know it wasn't a natural phenomenon. It was something that, that God made things.
19: Who can I call? It's the end of days. You're going to need the iron of Hesav, which represents Edom, which is the West, uh, Europe, and the Americas, to get intermixed with. Ishmael, which is basically Arabs, and and Muslims. How in the world was this ever going to happen if not for this refugee crisis? At the end of days, you're going to have this intermixing between Esav, Edom, which is the West, and the East, which is the Muslims and um, and, and the Arabs, making this through this influx into the world. And they're going to have children, you know... I don't want to say by the dozens, but they're going to have a far larger birth rate than the indigenous people there, and they're going to sort of conquer by number. And there are many different sources for this. Um, one of them in uh, in Yehezrel chapter 14, and many other sources as far as this is concerned, where it's mentioned very, very um, vividly what will happen to the Jews, and what will happen to Yerushalayim, and what will happen to the world at that time, where there will be many, many people killed, and so on and so forth. So, the idea of having these refugees come into Europe, it's no longer a matter of whether it's right or wrong. It's just simply a fulfillment of what it was meant to be all along. This the fulfillment of you know, the Rehazal and the prophecies. This has to happen, and this is just another sign that we are nearing you know, the completion of this Tikkun of the entire world. And Hashem wrote in a Torah
17: like this Translation. The difference between a Jew to a Goy, to a non-Jew, and we are talking now even the most righteous Goy, not an idol worshipper, a great gentle person, great personality, loving Jew, respecting God, everything fine with him. But this is a Jew compared to him, according to the Book of God. The Jew is like the water that you bring from the lake in the bucket. And the Gentile is the few drops that stick to the side of the bucket when you put it down. And the second comparison is, When you go to the market to buy vegetables, in many countries, in Israel it's still like this until this moment, you tell him, give me one kilo of cucumbers, which is about ten pieces. So what does he have? He has a mechanical scale, not electronic. Some places already have electronic, but he has this old-fashioned mechanical scale, and he has a weight that is 1,000 gram. It's one kilo, 2.2 pound. He put it on one side, and then he begins to put cucumbers on the other side. Once the scale is balanced, he put it in a bag, he pay him, and that's the end of it. Hashem say, you know what's the difference between you, the Jew, to a non-Jew? You are the weight for me, and he is the one gram that fall over the years to the side, which means if you take the weight that's supposed to be a thousand gram and you put it in a precise electronic scale, very, very, you know, a precise scale, it's never going to be a thousand Right 999, 997, over the years the corners are rubbing off. It's one gram after one year, another gram after two years. After a few years, it may be 990 grams. But no customer cares about this one or two grams. What is it? Another little piece of the cucumber? Nobody cares. It's a thousand grams, a thousand grams, 997, fine. Let me go, don't waste my time. This is what Hashem say You are the weight for me. He is the little piece who fell on the floor that nobody care And you want to be him?
3: rabbis. His paternal ancestors have provided rabbis in Trier since 1723. Brooks wrote that he wanted to avenge himself against the one who rules above. He joined the Satanist Church and was said to be in contact with the demon Shiloh. His early writings mention the name Olenim, which is a ritualistic name for Satan. A friend of Marx wrote in 1841 that Marx called the Christian religion one of the most immoral of religions. The Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx's anti-capitalist work that formed the basis of Marxism, was published in February 1848. Karl Marx's Jewish name was Moses Mordecai Marx Living.
15: Since the Kabbalah or Zohar was not merely a theological system, but taught the overthrow of the existing order, it was natural that before long Jews should begin to put it into practice. With the age of Voltaire and the so-called Enlightenment during the 18th century, we see a host of Jewish Kabbalists migrating west out of Poland and penetrating the very capitals of Europe. Jewish wonder workers, Baalshems as they were called, Saint Germain, Cadiliastro. Frank, Falk, men of vast wealth and mystery came upon the European scene at the end of the 18th century.
16: In Europe, in the years preceding the French Revolution, the foundations were laid for a new order in the world. Cableists such as Adam Weishaupt helped establish the ultra-secret Illuminati, which became a cover for plots and intrigues that would begin the erosion of Christian civilization. At the same time, beginning with Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, the Jews began to perceive their religion not simply as a means of personal salvation, but as a way to reform society at large. Many Jewish activists said that, starting with such revolutionaries as Moses and the prophets, Israel had always had the social objective of righting injustice and taking the part of the downtrodden. It was the duty of every Jew, they said, to come to the aid of the oppressed working masses, called the proletariat, in their historic struggle against capitalistic bondage. Many Jews thus came out of the ghetto and took part in all the great revolutions of the 19th century, including the revolution of 1829 and the revolution of 1848. It's thus not surprising that as the 20th century dawns, we find Jews turning their attentions to the overthrow of one of the last monarchies still opposing Jewish advancement, the Romanov dynasty of Russia. It is well known that the Jews had long hoped to overthrow the Tsar. It was natural then that Jewish philosophers such as Moses Hess and Karl Marx should contrive a philosophy that could make such overthrow possible. It was also natural that international Jewish bankers of New York, London, and Hamburg should finance it. The U.S. State Department, in its three-volume report on the origins of communism in Russia, published in 1931, reveals how Jewish-controlled German banks, under the leadership of Max Warburg, conspired as early as 1914 to send large payments to Lenin, Trotsky, and others in their attempts to bring down the Tsar. As part of this conspiracy, Jacob Schiff, head of the New York Jewish banking house of Kuhn Loeb, invested at least $20 which would be close to $1 billion today, toward the establishment of Bolshevism in Russia. In its article on socialism, the Jewish encyclopedia published in 1905, freely admits that Jews in Russia were ripe for revolution. In Russia, it, socialism, has become a movement of the Jewish masses. The later encyclopedia, Judaica, tells us the communist movement and ideology played an important part in Jewish life, particularly in the 1920s and 1930s and during and after World War II. The Judaica, in fact, presents an extensive list of the most powerful Jewish leaders of Bolshevism, which included Trotsky, Sverdlov, Genoviev, Kamenev, Litvinov, eganovich and many others. The Judaica also tells us just how many Jews filled the communist ranks. It says anti-Semitism drove the bulk of Russian Jewish youth into the ranks of the Bolshevik regime. When the white Russian patriots heroically attempted to regain their freedom from the Jews... The Judaica says compact Jewish masses were utilized by the Bolsheviks to suppress such counter-revolution. Clearly, Jews and native Russians were engaged in a death struggle over the destiny of Russia. Unfortunately, the Jewish masses is won. A rare photo shows the First People's Commissariat. From left to right are Yuritsky, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Sverdlov, and Kaganovich, all Jewish. In 1918, intelligence services of the Western powers were buzzing with reports that communism was an international conspiracy fomented by atheistic Jews. British, Dutch, American, and other intelligence reports confirmed that Jews filled the Bolshevik ranks and that as much as 75% of all Soviet commissars were Jewish. In the illustrated Sunday Herald of February 8, 1920, Sir Winston Churchill commented on what had almost become public knowledge. There is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism by these international and for the most part atheistical Jews. It is certainly a very great one. In the decades following the revolution, the question became, how much influence do the Jews still exert on the Soviet experiment? Although many of the Jewish kingpins in Bolshevism perished in Stalinist purges in the late 30s, none other than Nikita Khrushchev gives us an eye-opening view of just how many Jews were still in the Soviet government. Speaking to a delegation of French socialists, Khrushchev admitted in 1956, the government has found in some of its departments a heavy concentration of Jewish people, upwards of 50% of the staff. Because communism has historically been top-heavy with Jews, the Soviet policy of so-called anti-Semitism, much protested by Jews in the West, may in reality be but a ploy to distract the world from communism's Jewish past. Although most Jews have indeed been removed from high-profile positions in the Soviet hierarchy over the last 30 years, still Jews remain highly favored when it comes to immigration to the prosperous West. Since World War II, more than a million Jews have been allowed to leave the Iron Curtain, sometimes in waves of up to 52,000 a year. This contrasts to the grim reality that if even one Gentile attempts to escape, he would be lucky to receive only 15 years in prison. Jews, then, have played an enormous role in the Soviet experiment. Yet, as the Jewish Encyclopedia in its article on socialism again tells us, the passion of many Jews to socialize the world was not confined to Russia. As peddlers of socialism, it tells us, Jews must be reckoned among the pioneers of the socialist parties in America. As a case in point, a flood of socialistic Jews entered the FDR administration and helped pioneer the New Deal for America. Encyclopedia Judaica says Roosevelt's liberal policies endeared him to the Jewish community, which shared with him an overriding commitment to the welfare state. It is very significant that in letting left-wing Jews into his administration, FDR set in motion a conspiracy that was soon to have the gravest repercussions. FDR hired a German communist, Klaus Fuchs, a scientific genius who helped mastermind the atomic bomb. Yet Fuchs also headed a ring of eight highly influential Jews who delivered the entirety of our atomic technology to the Soviet Union in the early 1950s. They included Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, David Greenglass, Harry Gold, Sidney Weinbaum, Morton Sobel, and others. Of the ten convicted for espionage, no less than eight were Jewish.
20: And you are a socialist, and people call you a liberal and a socialist, why
21: will you not accept those two terms as the insults they're meant to be?
22: <laughs> I prefer the term actually to be a progressive, and I'll tell you why. When you look at countries in Scandinavia... Again, here we go. Here we go. All right. Denmark. Here we go. Denmark. In Denmark, everybody has health care as a right, and their system is high quality and more cost effective than our system. In Denmark, at a time in America where people can't afford to send their kids to college, people go and get a higher education, go to college for free. They have a very strong child care system for the middle class, wages are higher. So what you have is a society where government, as I believe it should in this country, radical idea, though it may be, should actually represent working people and the middle class rather than large campaign donors.
23: Evil. It's not just a personal opinion, it's evil. We're taking your rights away. Now, the other nine planks to the Communist Manifesto are basically just methods for doing the first thing. How are we going to take your rights, uh, property away? Well, number two is a heavy progressive income tax. A progressive income tax means the more money you make, the higher the percentage. Do we have a progressive income tax in the United States? Yes. And you say IRS? They don't put the percentages. They change it and they convert it. If you make between 5000 and 10000 this is how much you pay. If you make 10 ten and fifteen, this is how much you pay. And they give you the number. Well, get your calculator and figure it out. The more money you make, the higher the percentage. What do you think the highest percentage the IRS has ever collected? Right now, I think the top percent is about 33%. What do you think the maximum was that the IRS has ever collected in history? 98%. How did you know that? Okay. Between 1941 and 1942, during World War II, there were some people who were taxed 98%. That's almost all. How come we didn't have another American Revolution? To hell with the Germans. I'm going to get my gun and start fighting here. You're going to take 98% of my stuff? You're going to have to take it. If you think you're big enough to take it, come right on ahead. But I'm not going to give it up. That's ridiculous. Uh, Abolition of all rights of inheritance. If your parents die... The government is going to take half. Why? What do they do to get half? They just want to make sure that your parents don't leave you a million dollars so that you can get more and more money. It's a lot easier to become a multi-millionaire if mom and dad leave you one to start with. We don't want that to happen. Uh, confiscation of all property of emigrants and rebels. If you ever fly internationally, you got to fill out a card. If you're carrying more than $10,000, they'll take it. You want to leave the United States and go live someplace else? Goodbye. Okay, leave all your money here. A central bank. What about the Federal Reserve.
3: Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state; the bringing of cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of soil, generally in accordance with a common plan; <laughs> equal obligation of all to work under the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries.
23: Items in the Communist Manifesto are here in the United States right now. Did you know that you live in a communist country?
3: Free education for all children in government-funded schools.
2: Are you
23: glad that you live in a communist country? What are you going to do about it?
24: In May of 1919 in Dusseldorf, Germany, the Allied forces obtained a copy of the communist rules for revolution. Rule number one, corrupt the young, get them away from religion, get them interested in sex, make them superficial and destroy their ruggedness. Rule number two, get control of all means of publicity. Get people's minds off their government by focusing their attention on athletics, sexy books, plays, and other trivialities. Rule number three. Divide people into hostile groups by constantly harping on controversial matters of no importance. Rule number four. Destroy the people's faith in their natural leaders by holding the latter up to contempt. Ridicule and speak against condemnatory utterances. Rule number five always preach true democracy but seize power as fast and ruthlessly as possible. Rule number six by encouraging government extravagance, destroy its credit, produce fear of inflation, rising prices, and general discontent. Rule number seven. Foster strikes in vital industries, encourage civil disorder, and foster a lenient and soft attitude on the part of government toward these disorders. Rule number eight. By special argument, cause a breakdown of the old moral virtues. Honesty, sobriety, continence, faith in the pledged word, ruggedness. And finally, rule number nine. Cause the registration of all firearms on some pretext with the view of confiscation of them and leaving the population helpless. For the daily U.S. and international news, this has been Headlines with a Voice.
10: In Inglorious Bastards, section and over here are the people who made the movie. Hey, <laughs> in Inglorious Bastards, Christoph Waltz played a Nazi obsessed with finding Jews. Well, Christoph.
22: some aspect of the movie industry, which was really a mom-and-pop industry of storefront theaters in not-very-elegant neighborhoods. My dad was president of Paramount for almost 30 years. The way he got into the
25: business was quite wonderful. My grandmother, who raised eight children in two rooms above a fish-and-produce market in um, a Jewish ghetto in Chicago called Maxwell Street, she came rushing and said, Bonnie, Bonnie, you have to come here quickly I have the most wonderful business, and she was going on and on and on, and she got him on a trolley car, and took him to a kind of storefront Nickelodeon theater, and on the way there, she told him that this was the greatest business in the world, because the people paid the money before they got the goods.
20: At the turn of the century, movies reflected the vision of America shared by Thomas Edison, and the other men who invented the film industry. Most of these old-stock Protestants saw film as an amusement for the working classes. But in 1912, to escape Edison, the future moguls headed west to the orange groves of California. Here they found immediate success.
26: Now, why did they move to California? I believe that they went there because California was a raw social environment. And although there was a social system in place, it was nowhere near as sophisticated and nowhere near as entrenched as the social hierarchy in Boston or New York or even Chicago, where these moguls came from. So coming to California, they realized that they could create their own social environment. They could create an empire of their own, not only on screen, but within their own lives and their own social environment. And that's precisely
23: what they did. In 1915, Carl Lemley had decided to open a very large plant in the valley north of uh, Hollywood uh, which they called Universal City and they got themselves a postal designation for Universal City with its own mayor and its own police force. A a gigantic facility that includes all necessities for designing films, building sets, photographing them, editing them, costuming them, uh, writing the scripts, housing the executives, all under one piece of property, which he would people with his relatives, very famously brought over from Laupheim, uh, Germany, and they were very pleased that this was, you know, the first movie-making city in the world. Among the movie industry's thirty thousand employees are men
20: and women from nearly three hundred trades and professions. Following Lemley, by 1920, Harry Cohen, Zucker, Goldwyn, Fox, and Mayer had set up their own studios. Golden shtetls, where each was clearly in charge. Harry Warner, who with three of his brothers brought sound to the motion picture, was born in Poland. I was Jack Warner, youngest of the Warner clan. And then the senior member of the film-famed brothers. Also from Poland was Samuel Goldwyn, born Goldfish. Although Goldwyn never ran a major studio, he was perhaps the biggest and best known of the independent Hollywood producers. The founder, Carl Lemley, came from a small town in Germany. Louis B. Mayer, who gave us the glory years of the MGM studio, was born in a Russian-Jewish village. William Fox and Paramount's Adolf Zucker were both born in Hungary. Fox's studio merged with 20th Century Pictures to form 20th Century Fox. Here comes Adolf Zucker, the president of
27: Paramount Pictures.
20: Zuko, known as the father of the feature-length film, spent his childhood in this Jewish village.
4: These guys were ruthless. They used women. They treated stars uh, brutally sometimes.
26: There's a very romantic notion that Hollywood movies were made by artists the director and the writer and, to a certain extent, the stars actually made these movies. Those were the real artists, and these guys were only businessmen. I would place the artistic sensibility not with the director but with the studio head. And for those who say, well, this is ridiculous, I would say, from beginning to end, the executive had the primary input into the picture and supervised every aspect of production over and above the fact that, beyond any individual picture, It was the executive who created the entire studio apparatus. Every producer who worked there, every director who worked there, every writer who worked there, and every star who worked there was part of the larger system that was created by the Hollywood Jews.
25: I'm not sure that there was an, quote, American dream before the Jews came to Hollywood and uh, invented it. Um, What you had was a westward movement, and you had the idea of freedom, but you didn't have uh, what we have today, which is a popular culture that creates uh, dreams. That's a dream factory. Once the
20: studios were in place, the Jewish moguls produced hundreds of feature-length films each year. Movies that presented America with a new vision of itself. A vision that was very different from that of the establishment filmmakers of the Edison Trust.
25: They got to put their hopes and aspirations and mythologies about what a perfect life would be like, which is something I think people probably spend a long time thinking about when they have a very imperfect life with a great deal of Persecution, disempowerment. You know, what would the system be if we could make it up and show it to you? You What would the system be if we could make it up and show it to you? You What would the system be if we could make it up and show it to you?
24: Two infant boys have gotten the herpes virus after they got circumcised. Uh, Now authorities, including the health department, are investigating this case. Now, they were circumcised uh, by an Orthodox Jewish family. It was part of their tradition. And part of the problem is after the circumcision took place, uh, they applied something known as direct oral suction.
16: Matitsa pet is a practice that Orthodox Jews do when they circumcise baby boys after they cut off the foreskin they the the moil, the circumciser uh sucks the blood from the penis to sort of clean the wound this this practice really shocks people when they first hear about it but it's it's a rigorously defended
10: practice uh amongst orthodox Jews are you saying to me that you can put a kid's cut dick in your mouth and it not be illegal What's we'll that? Now. It's outrageous, isn't it? It's fucking outrageous.
26: America, which is not the real America, it's their own version of the real America. But ultimately, this shadow America becomes so popular and so widely disseminated that its images and its values come to devour the real America. And so the the grand irony of all of Hollywood is that Americans come to define themselves by the shadow America that was created by Eastern European Jewish immigrants who were admitted to the precincts of the real America. In the
20: 1920s and 30s, movie houses became temples of the new Hollywood religion. Jewish values made kitsch. 75% of all Americans went to the movies at least once a week this kind of movie going was religious, because it had to do with worship. It had to do with the screen being larger
15: than you were, uh, and you being in awe of what you were looking at, and feeling a certain reverence for it. And so there was, maybe you could say a bogus spirituality, but it was a spirituality still that was believed in. Hollywood culture is the dominant culture. It is the fantasy structure that we're all living in some
20: Became the gods and goddesses of the new American religion. Innovation, getting cheerfully mobbed. It's frenzied friendship, frantic fandom. Here she comes, the star. And where there are new gods, there must be new idols. So the studio heads began a movie guild with a lofty title of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. It was Mayer's brilliant idea to create the Oscars, where the movie moguls could honor themselves by giving each other awards. In this way, they went from being a group of immigrant Jews to award-winning American producers. Often the first thing to go was the Jewish name. The Hollywood Jews were obsessed with erasing anything Jewish in their films, their lives, and the lives of their stars. Theodosia Goodman became Fida Barra. Sofia Kosso became Sylvia Sidney. Isser Danielovich Dembski became Kirk Douglas. Leo Jacobi became Lee J. Cobb. Shirley Schrift became Shelley Winters. Bernard Schwartz became Tony Curtis. David Kaminsky became Danny Kaye. Edward Iskowitz became Eddie Cantor. Melvin Hesselberg became Melvin Douglas. Muni Wiesenfreund, a star of the Yiddish theater, became Paul Muni. Emanuel Goldenberg became Edward G. Robinson. The G was a reminder of who he really was. Nice Jewish girls, such as Lily Palmer, Judy Holliday, and Lauren Bacall, or Betty Persky, helped to define the American woman. The Jewish fear of standing out was expressed through another icon that would make its way to the screen.
22: Superman was invented by two Jewish uh, kids in the late 1930s when there also was a um, a, a worldwide um, upsurge in, in, in very frightening anti-semitism Superman is discovered like Moses in the bulrushes he's an immigrant from another uh, planet who comes to earth <laughs> has his identity as a as a as a mild mannered intellectual but really underneath he's the man of steel i think that's a very suggestive jewish fantasy it's almost as if he's passing all the time while the jew felt like an alien in america superman
20: was a real alien this looks like a job for superman yet incredibly he is the only superhero who manages to keep his identity secret without wearing a mask jews could have created a story based on the premise that all one needs is a gentile demeanor to hide in plain sight
22: at home americans feared red subversion
27: congress revived the house committee on un-american activities in 1947 the committee investigated Hollywood, factory of America's
11: imagination.
26: Have you ever observed any communistic information in any scripts? Well,
15: I've turned down quite a few scripts because I thought they were tinged with communistic ideas. They uh, haven't attempted to use me, I don't think, because apparently... Um, I know that I'm not very sympathetic to communism. There has been a small group within the Screen Actors Guild which has consistently opposed the policy of the Guild Board and Officers or the Guild itself as evidenced by the vote on various issues. That uh, small clique uh, has been referred to, has been discussed as more or less following the tactics that we uh, associate with the Communist Party. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia, or some other unpleasant place. April
27: 1944. The Biltmore Hotel, Los Angeles. Members of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals meet secretly with investigators from Washington's Un-American Activities Committee. Alliance had been formed a few months earlier by Walt Disney and a group of Hollywood ultra conservatives dedicated to stemming the communist
18: tide. A lot of famous names
17: were involved in it. A lot of them uh, really believed that uh, communism was taking a hold in our schools and in,
27: in our movies. Disney and his MPA colleagues had drawn up a list of suspected communists working in the film industry, and at the Biltmore meeting, they handed it over to the investigators.
2: These are the Hollywood Ten, these eight, and these
25: two. They were tried and declared guilty. appealed their cases to the higher courts. Their appeal was denied. All ten are now in federal prison, serving one-year sentences. We should like you to meet them. Albert Maltz, 41 years old, born in Brooklyn. Lester Cole, born in New York City. 45 years old. Samuel Ornitz, 60 years of age, born in New York, novelist and screenwriter. Albert Betsy, born in New York, age 46, newspaper man, novelist, critic, and screenwriter. Herbert Biverman, 50 years old, born in Philadelphia. John Howard Lawson, born in New York City, 56 years old. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a
15: member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this
27: committee the that's basic principles the question, of America. That's not the question.
14: The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I am framing my answer in the only way in which
15: any American citizen can frame his... Then you denied, the question you invade his... Absolutely invaded. Then you deny to, you, you refuse to answer that question, is that correct?
27: I have told you that I will All right. remember my beliefs, my affiliations, and you, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It is perfectly clear to me, gentlemen, that if you continue in this uh, particular fashion, you, you have
23: only one answer one idea. the question. And that is what they in the industry? You're excused.
27: Trial attack on Hollywood left wingers was assisted by a series of big name witnesses, anxious to confirm the extent of the communist threat in Hollywood. Several of the so-called friendly witnesses came from the ranks of Disney's Motion Picture Alliance. And on October the 24th, 1947, after a session with Ronald Reagan, Disney himself took the stand. I, I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing. And I feel that, uh, that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all the good free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American can go out without this taint of communism. And at the present time, you own and operate the Walt Disney Studio at- In his testimony, California. Disney returned to his now familiar theme of how the communists were taking control of the American labor movement thing that, that I resent the most is that they are able to get into these unions and take them over. They get themselves closely tied up in the labor thing so that if you try to get rid of them, they'd make a labor. He named several of the strike leaders as communists.
11: I got a call from my uh, brother in Los Angeles. He just said, Walt Disney named you. And I said, the son of a bitch.
3: In 1919, Allied forces discovered a document in Düsseldorf, Germany with a list of ten rules on how to weaken a country in its existent form and replace it with a communist revolution. The document was first printed in the United States in the Bartlesville, Oklahoma Examiner Enterprise the same year in 1919. Almost 20 years later, in 1946, the Attorney General for Florida obtained them from a known member of the Communist Party, acknowledging that the rules were then still a part of the Communist program for the United States of America. Number one, corrupt the youth. Get them away from religion. Get them interested in sex. Make them superficial. Destroy their ruggedness.
21: What have the Germans done to the Jews? You must always ask what have you done the Jews to the Germans. Since 1850, when the Jews got all the the political rights in Germany, the German Reich, they were a small minority of 2% of the population. They were a small minority. This small minority managed to control of about 50% of the media to have a tremendous influence in movie and in uh, theater and in literature. They were overrepresented. This is one thing. They were absolutely overrepresented as today in England, in France and in the United States. Then the third point which was psychologically the most dangerous of all they have introduced into german art and culture and theatre and movie decadence immorality the first homosexual theatres plays were made in berlin in the nineteen twenties the first adultery. Theatre plays were made in the 1880s and 1890s, hundred years ago, by Jewish authors: adultery, uh, then sexual perversions of all sorts, sadism, masochism, a uh, lot of uh, homosexuality, all these things, and then de- decadent art, you know, an art which is absolutely ridiculous. So-called modern art. It was all pushed by Jewish intellectuals, and this created among the German people. Uh, a big, uh, a, a, a big revolt, and they also they wrote books ridiculing Christianity, ridiculing Jesus. I mean, it was something like Salman Rushdie uh, in uh, with the Muslims, and uh, there were furious reactions in Germany.
2: Okay, good. I, I hope the Jews did kill I do it again. I can do it again in a second. Right here is Birkenstocks packing this way.
28: Jew about a fringe sect that advocates for Israel's extinction, attends holocaust denial conferences, and hangs out with terrorist groups, you'd probably think I was talking about radical Islamists or white supremacists. You probably wouldn't conjure up this image of Orthodox Jews. But that's exactly who I'm talking about. Meet the Deuteronauta, Judaism's fringiest, most extreme sect, whose warped theology has them rubbing shoulders with the worst enemies of the Jewish people. So here's the million-dollar question. Why would any Jew Especially a religious Jew oppose their own self-determination, jeopardize their own safety, and ally with anti-Semites against their own people disagreement amongst Jews isn't anything new. As the saying goes, two Jews, three opinions. Still, most Jews agree that Natalia Cauta's opinions are beyond the pale. Make no mistake, even the most devoutly anti-Zionist Jews shy away from Natalia Kauta's subversive tactics. Hold up, devout anti-Zionist Jews? Isn't that kind of an oxymoron? After all, if you're even remotely familiar with Judaism, you know that longing for Zion is embedded in our cultural and spiritual DNA. But for some Jews, there's a distinct difference between the Zion of our liturgy and the Zionism of Israel's founding fathers. And it's that gap between our prayers and our political reality that powers Natoya Kaltas activism. Hold up, let me explain. Early Zionist leaders were mostly secular and largely concerned with the practical realities of building a state, a home for global Jewry. For them, spiritual liberation depended on the Jewish people's physical liberation. But devout Jews wrestled with the theological issues of building a Jewish state. And while many religious Jews saw a deep spiritual value in the establishment of a modern Jewish state, others disagreed. Strongly. See, religious Zionists believe that the creation of the state of Israel represents the first miraculous step in the coming of the Messianic era. But religious anti-Zionists, like the Natalia Kauta, think they've got it all wrong. That only the Messiah can rebuild the Jewish homeland. In their words, we are in exile by divine decree and may emerge from exile solely via divine redemption. From the Atulicata's perspective, the Zionists who built the modern state of Israel more or less took God's job and made a mockery of it, building a secular state instead of a theocracy governed by Jewish law. To quote, Again, from a prominent anti-Zionist website, the modern state of Israel represents a pseudo-Judaism that has replaced a divine and Torah-centered understanding of our peoplehood. So the disagreement between Zionists and anti-Zionist Jews isn't just political. It's fundamentally religious. Because where Zionist Jews believe that the modern, man-made Jewish state is an overall net positive for the Jewish people, anti-Zionist Jews believe, well, the exact opposite. This ideological difference stems in part from an obscure discussion in the Talmud about the three oaths that govern the Jewish people's relationship with God. And while many Jews consider these oaths to be symbolic, anti-Zionist Jews see them as a religiously binding contract. Violate the first two oaths, and you violated your contract with God. Yikes. So what are these oaths anyway? Number one, once in exile, Jews are forbidden to return to their homeland en masse. Number two, Jews are forbidden to rebel against the governments of the countries where they live. Number three, the world's nations are forbidden to persecute Jews too harshly. So as political Zionism gained traction in the 20th century, some religious leaders motivated by the first two oaths formed anti-Zionist groups in response. By 1921, Jerusalem was home to two distinct Orthodox groups who worked closely to counter the Zionist influence. For a while, these anti-Zionist groups were a major thorn in the Zionist leadership side. They asked the British to rescind their support for the Zionist cause. They pledged their loyalty to the Jordanian king should he succeed in taking over the Promised Land. And they had some particularly fiery words for the Zionist counterparts. But everything changed in 1936 when Arab riots ripped throughout Palestine. Zionist paramilitaries, like the Haganah, did their best to defend the Jewish communities spread throughout the land. Still, hundreds of Jews were murdered sparking a fierce debate among the anti-Zionist groups. Without the Zionist paramilitaries, the Jewish death toll would have been massive. So should the anti-Zionist groups start cooperating with the Zionists? For one small band of hardliners, the answer was a clear, hell no. It was these radicals who peeled off from the larger anti-Zionist community in 1938 to form their own splinter group. They called themselves the Natura Karta, Aramaic for the guardians of the city. They held fast to their anti-Zionism throughout the entire Arab revolt, which ended in 1939. Nine. They held fast through all of World War II, as the Nazi war machine consumed one-third of the world's Jews. For some anti-Zionists, the Holocaust was a turning point, a reason to believe in a national homeland. But for the Neturei Kauta, the Holocaust was a divine punishment for Zionism. The Jewish people had violated the first two oaths. They'd immigrated to Israel en masse. They'd rebelled against British rule. So God followed suit, no longer bound by the third oath to protect the Jews from harsh persecution. This is a rigid and uncompromising view of the world. One that I think most people would find pretty problematic. Still, it's not restricted to the Nature Karta. There's at least one other anti-Zionist sect, Satma Hasidim, that believes the Holocaust was divine punishment for Zionism. And yet, even that sect rejects the Nature Karta. That's right. Whether religious or secular, Zionist or anti-Zionist, the entire Jewish community thinks the Nature Karta are insane. Because though theological disagreement is practically a Jewish tradition, selling out your fellow Jews to the enemy is not. But selling out their fellow Jews is the Natura Karta's whole MO. As the world prepared to vote on the partition of Palestine, the Natura Karta appealed to the UN Secretary General to rescue them from the Zionist regime. Despite the Natura Karta's best efforts, Israel declared independence on May 14, 1948. Six Arab armies, including Egypt's and Jordan's, invaded the next day. Israel won that war, but shortly after the dust cleared, the Natulia kaltas so-called foreign minister, Leib Weissfish, crossed into enemy territory hoping to petition the Arab League for weapons to fight against the Zionists. The Jordanians, to their credit, handed him over to Israel before he reached Arab League headquarters. But Weissfish set a dangerous precedent, and the Natulia Calta had made common cause with Israel's enemies ever since. Through the 1950s, the Natulia Kauta tried repeatedly to make friendly contact with Israel's Arab neighbors. They finally succeeded in 1980, when Weiss Fischer's successor, Moshe Hirsch, befriended PLO chairman Yasser Arafat. At the time, Yasser Arafat was public enemy number one. Under his leadership, the PLO orchestrated some of the most devastating attacks in Israel's history. Massacres of high schoolers and tourists and Olympic athletes, hijackings of buses and planes and cruise ships, the bombing of civilian targets. But Hirsch and the Notoria Carte more broadly saw real value in these repulsive photo ops with the PLO chairman. For one, their meetings made headlines, broadcasting the Notoria Carte's message to the world. But perhaps more importantly, Hirsch presented his cozy relationship with Arafat as proof that Jews could live and worship safely under Arab rule, negating their need for a sovereign state. This is the same twisted logic that powers the Natura Karata's friendship with former Iranian President Ahmadinejad, with Hezbollah, with Hamas. And it's exactly why the Natura Karata's ideology is so toxic. Why even the most radical anti-Zionist groups think they're insane. The Natura Karta weaponized their Judaism. Their appearance is their currency. And they wield it cleverly to present themselves as the real spokesman of the Jewish people. And yet... The wider Jewish community understands that the Neturei Kauta are nothing more than tokens, the pet Jews of enemy powers. Make no mistake, the groups that the Neturei Kauta cozy up to are explicitly anti-Semitic. Their bombs and rockets and rhetoric do not differentiate between Zionists and anti-Zionists. But the Neturei Kauta provide them with convenient cover, allowing the avowed enemies of the Jewish people to say, I'm an anti-Zionist, not an anti-Semite. It's a toxic and transparent tactic. The cat sat on the but it works. Because if you didn't know anything about Judaism, and let's face it, most of the world doesn't, the Netulai certainly looked the part. You'd come away thinking that they represented the world's Jews when they do nothing of the sort. They're selling out the Jewish people by lending a Jewish seal of approval to the vilest ideas. All while insisting that they're not a violent group. That they're working towards the peaceful dismantling of the Jewish state. It's a brilliant bit of trickery. Because the Netulai Kauta don't need to call for violence. Their allies in Iran and Lebanon and Gaza Gaza, are more than committed to doing their dirty work for them. So the next time someone trots out the Natura Karata as evidence that Jews oppose Zionism, you'll know the truth. The Natura Karata are Judaism's ideological rejects, and that's one thing all Jews can agree on.